All right, we're going to try to do this one more time. Welcome to Human Things, the new Merely Human Ministries podcast. This is Jay Watts of Merely Human Ministries, and this is a podcast born out of shelter in place, born out of social distancing, coming from the dining room of my house with my state-of-the-art facility set up here on my dining room table, a a project born out of a desire to find some way to engage in an idea and with an idea. And that idea came from C.S. Lewis as coronavirus, COVID-19, was breaking into the consciousness of the American people. And as people all over the Internet seem to be stressing over this new thing, this new threat to our existence, a video of an old talk from C.S. Lewis started making the rounds, a, an animated video where it was discussing the nuclear threat and how another generation was faced with this thing that threatened them all. A threat that I'm not unfamiliar with, by the way, growing up in Generation X during the Cold War, I remember living with that sense that the nuclear war could happen at any given moment. We had movies like The Day After, where they would show us the effects and the devastation of nuclear war to try to make us more afraid of something that I think many of us already lived with a little bit of fear of. We actually had drills at school where they would take you out of the classroom and line you up in the hall and have you get down on your hands and knees and put your hands over your the back of your head and put your head down against the block wall as if a nuclear strike a few miles away at Dobbins Air Force Base would somehow be able to be survived because I got in that position in that particular school. But that was a thing that we actually did. So the threat, the threat of the nuclear war that C.S. Lewis is discussing is not something that was alien to me growing up. It was something that I was very familiar with. And he says as he's talking about this new threat, this thing that is looming over the lives of the people living with the, under it. And he says, we have to accommodate this into this world where there are already all of these other things that could bring death into our lives. This is just one more thing, he says. And then he says this, if death is going to find us, let it find us doing human things. And so I listened to that and I thought, what does that mean to be found doing human things? I have a job where I argue a lot. I argue and the people that I work with and the people who write blog posts for me, we're arguing about the value of human life a lot. A lot of the work that we do is to look at specific and particular ways of talking about the issue on the value of human life predominantly on the issue of abortion, but on many different levels as well, and finding ways to respond to that idea, anything that cheapens or takes away from the equal dignity of all life, this universal sense that human life matters, the idea that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect, and that's what we argue, and that's what we do. But in this particular format, what we wanted to do was ask a broader question. What does it mean to be caught to be found by death doing human things. What are these human things? And in a greater sense, what does it mean to be human, not just biologically or philosophically, but also behaviorally and how we treat each other in this new normal that we're living in right now and going beyond? 
to engage these issues beyond arguments. And another goal of this new project of human things is as much as possible for it to be a positive thing that we're putting out. I think of Olaf in um, Frozen when he says he's talking about the the big ice monster whose name eludes me right now. And, and he says, we were talking about you. All good things. All good things. All good things. That's that's one of the things. All good things today. We want to keep it good as much as possible. We want this to be an uplifting experience as we wrestle with this ourselves. I am a son. I came into this world a son and a brother. I grew up and became a friend and a husband, and a father. Hopefully one day I'll have the privilege of being a grandfather. I have all these roles that I play in my life in addition to the professional one that I play here with Merely Human Ministries. And so I process all the things that we do both through this ministry and all the things that we face in this world and all of those things. And so this gives us some ability to bring some of that aspect into our work as well. The first thing I want to talk about today is the idea of coronavirus in a way that we have discussed it around the Watts household and with some of my friends as we've wrestled with what does this mean, especially as it launched into our lives through this weird like black map that Johns Hopkins had online. I don't know how many of you looked at that map, but it was this weird world map where red dots started off in Wuhan and then through China and started to spread and then we saw it blowing up in Iran and then it was in Washington, and then a dot here and a dot as it starts to spread across the United States. And the stress of all of this grows, and you're starting to come to terms with that this is going to be a reality for all of us to deal with. One of the things that we talked about in the Watts household was it came from actually a movie, the Sherlock Holmes movie starring Robert Downey Jr., the first starring Robert Downey Jr. and um, Jude Law as Watson. And and there's a moment in the movie where, where a the bad guy has kidnapped somebody that they care about and put them in a situation where they have to save them. And there's no way to save them without it hurting, without it causing damage. And Watson looks at Robert Downey Jr. He looks at Sherlock Holmes and he said, this was designed to hurt. This was designed to hurt. And that's one of the things that we talked about with our family early on. There's no way out of this that it won't hurt coronavirus, COVID-19, it's not going to kill us. It's not going to destroy the human family. It doesn't look like that kind of a thing. It's not the end of days or the end of us all, but it's designed to hurt. Obviously, the first way that this is going to hurt is we're going to lose people. We already have. We're losing lives. There are people who I respect, people who I admire, people who I have a deep affection for who have lost a loved one already. We have seen people posting memorials online to somebody who either influenced them or somebody who was a friend of theirs, a relative, a father, someone they cared about who was healthy a month ago and is now no longer with us. Now we can be thankful when those numbers aren't as high as we feared they may have been. And we can continue to pray that they will stay low but there has already been a representative threat and loss of life and life. If it, if it's not you, it's a statistic. If it's not touching you, it's just the 3% down to 1% down to half a percent or whatever the actual death rate is. But as Dan Wallace of Dallas theological seminary, as he 
posted a moving tribute to his father, who just died of coronavirus today, so eloquently put. He wasn't a statistic to me. It's not a statistic to me. To me, it's my father or my friend or my loved one. So the first way it's going to hurt is that many of us are losing people whom we love. The next way that it's going to hurt is the fear of losing people that we love. I mean, I felt it when it first broke and they and they kept saying online, it's only 3% dying and most of those are either 80 or older or have an underlying medical condition. And on the list of those medical conditions would be things like high blood pressure, heart issues, diabetes. Well, in my household, where the people that I love the most in this world reside, I have a type 1 diabetic daughter and I have a wife who is a stroke survivor. And then the other people sort of flippantly saying, well, people over 80. Well, I know a lot of people right at that 80 threshold. And I don't think coronavirus is like taking IDs, right? I mean, if I know somebody 78, 79, I'm like, well, good for you, right? It's just really angry about people once they get to 80. It's not, it's not taking IDs. It's not like a bouncer checking. It's like, okay, you I'll get and you I won't. Those are just data statistics. But if it happens to you, it's 100% you. And if you're in the crosshairs of it, it feels like it's happening or it's a threat to happen to you differently. So it's going to hurt first because it's going to, we are losing lives. Secondly, it hurts because it breeds this a sense of fear or worry in us. And then another way that it hurts unavoidably is economically. And that's not a small thing. And we have to exist when this is over. And too many people have seen their whole professional lives upended by this. They had small projects, small businesses that they were building or working on and dreams of making them bigger. But they were just fragile at that moment and they didn't doesn't look as if they're going to survive. And, and that plays into that fear that plays into that doubt that plays into all those other things. So this was designed to hurt. There is an encouragement of that because we have to look at what it is designed to hurt, but what it's not designed to destroy. This won't destroy us. There will be life on the other side of this, however different it may be. And for many of us, for those of us who know people that have died, it will be a life missing some vital part of our community. And it will never be the same. For those of us who have had to reimagine ourselves in the world of economics in a new light in a new way the world will never be the same but there will be life for most of us when this is over and so seeing that it's designed to hurt should also give us the perspective that it's not designed to destroy and there will be life on the other side of this and as long as we're here there's a way to do good but but let's talk about adaptability for a moment because that's something I want to talk about for, for to focus on today. The idea of being adaptable to change. Because that can be discussed on multiple different ways. What do I mean about adaptable? Well, number one, means being able to see that. And as I've told our kids, one of the first things we talked about with our kids when this whole thing was started was whatever goals you had going into coronavirus, assume they will be alive when coronavirus is over. The means by which you will pursue those goals are going to change for the short term, but the goals remain the same. So 
let's look around. Since we couldn't do things the way we could prior to this whole thing starting, let's figure out how we're going to do it in the midst of all of this in a way that when we get back to something looking more like the normal that we used to live, you will be ready and hit the ground running at that point. You will be found prepared and not found like somebody who saw this as an extended summer vacation and sit around watching TV and eating too much junk food. So we immediately adapted. We told our kids day one, this isn't the end of any big plans. This is just the end of some short-term goals. But the big goals, they're still there. But people immediately started adapting. We can do Zoom. Uh, we can do live casts on Facebook. Uh, we can do Facebook Live. We can do all of these different things. We can find different means to pursue the goals that we had coming in and to be able to build community. And so that adaptability keeps us from getting bogged down in what we can't do and making a quick evaluation. There's two things we have to look at, what changed and what didn't. What's new and what's the same. And what's already there, I mean, probably a few weeks ago, hardly any of us were using Zoom and now everyone's an expert on it. My kids, my son, immediately was able to pivot his Bible studies that he had into a Zoom. He was worried that they were going to lose momentum. But if anything, it's been such a positive thing for he and his friends because they get together in these Zoom conferences, they do a Bible study, and then they spend time just being goofy kids together. My youngest daughter has her Sunday school with Zoom. So there's an adaptability. There's a, there's a sense of resiliency that we have to take into these major things. And we have to see that as something that we cultivate. My son, who's 17 now, has goals about what kind of man he wants to be going forward when he leaves our house. And he's, he's pursuing the Naval Academy. He's always wanted to go to the Naval Academy since he was in third grade. And he's pursued it with discipline. And a vision, but now that he's getting closer to Naval Academy, as he has conversations with people at the Naval Academy about what he would like to do when he gets there, he has to think about that in terms of what will make me valuable to our community coming out of that experience such that I will be set up to have a good job for a long time going forward. And one of the things that we talked about is cultivating a line of study that will make him adaptable as the world changes, as he gets older, to, to nourish and create in him a personality that can find itself in a changing environment and still find ways to be useful to the community around you. And we have to look at things in that sense. And not be overwhelmed by the moment. One of the things that we talked about with our kids was, you know, if you look at the airline policy and you read the safety regulations, it's 90 seconds to get people off of a plane after a plane crashes. And I looked at where that 90 seconds come, came from. It's, it's about 90 seconds until the, the jet fuel will ignite. And so we have 90 seconds. Now, that means from the moment that you crash... If there's the ability to get people off the plane, you have to make several calculations. And one of those things that you need to be able to do is to recognize the world has changed. And under normal circumstances, when I get off a plane, I get my stuff, I get my carry on, I carry all my, I make sure I've collected all my things and I carry them off. 
in this new reality, what's important is to get everybody off efficiently in a way that is the least cumbersome so that we save as many lives as we possibly can. So we have to be able to adapt immediately. There's a great, I, I quote movies, it's ridiculous. There's a great line, I think, in, in uh, World War Z, where Brad Pitt's character finds himself holed up in this apartment. He's talking to this guy whose family is hiding in this apartment. I believe it's in New Jersey. And he tells them, movement is life. I've been around a lot of terrible things a lot of terrible incidences that have happened. And by and large, the people who left are the people who had a good chance at survival. The people who stayed, they died. And what he's saying is the status quo changed. So now you have to change your instinct to stay here and hold up in your home. In that particular instance is bad. You can't treat the world as if it was still yesterday. There was a, my daughter I told you I've mentioned as a type one diabetic when she was diagnosed, we were in the hospital in the emergency room. Right. And they walked in and they, they had needles and I could see the stress in her face. And I looked at her and I said, you know, honey, yesterday you could probably afford to be afraid of needles. Right. Sunday, yesterday, you could, as an eight year old girl, have the luxury to be a little bit squeamish about needles. But today's Monday. And you've been diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic. And it appears that needles are going to be a part of keeping you healthy for the rest of your life. There's just no benefit for you and I to sit in this room and to wish it was Sunday. It's Monday. And you're a diabetic. And we've got to embrace this new world right now. And to her credit, man, that 8-year-old girl never flinched another time they put a needle into her. She knew from that moment on her life had changed and she had to embrace this new reality, this new normal in order to remain healthy. So there's in that sense, there's adaptability, but there's another adaptability that was mentioned back there with C.S. Lewis. Again, I talked about look at what changed, but also recognize what's the same. I think C.S. Lewis does a great job talking about the idea that there are all sorts of things all the time that could kill us, that could get us. You know, my daughter and I talked about that. Mary MJ and I were talking about that one night before she went to bed years ago. She was, I was praying with her and talking to her and she said, you know, I wonder what it's like for other people to go to sleep for diabetics. Night is the most dangerous time when they go to sleep. They run the risk of drive to, of dropping low Lows are what kills diabetics. If a diabetic's going to die suddenly, it's usually because they're low. And that can often happen at night while they're asleep. And so she has a continuous glucose monitor on her, something that sets off alarms if she goes particularly low. But she asked me that question as an active girl who works out and pursues sports. She said, I wonder what it's like for most people to go to sleep at night. Is it the most relaxing time of day? It's because for me, it's just so stressful. It just feels different. I said, yeah, you know, and in light of what C.S. Lewis said that I talked about earlier, I said, yeah, you know, honey, tomorrow's promise to no man. None of us, not a single one of us. I, I quote James chapter 4, 17 a lot, but earlier in chapter 4, he says, now listen, in, in verse 13 to 15, it says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. 
Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Or Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. In our household, we talk a lot about the idea that no man is promised tomorrow. So, darling, you feel stressed because every night you go to bed and you feel like there is a real chance that you won't wake up tomorrow. But we all face that. The difference between you and all the rest of us is you have a name attached to your stress, diabetes. And even though the rest of us, it could be a tree falling on the house, a tornado, a storm, um, apnea, heart attack. I could get in my car and drive and get into a car accident tomorrow. I remember I used to have a slight stress about this when I was younger. And then I saw this terrible story about a young football player that fell down onto the turf during a football game as a college football player, an athlete in the prime of his life, got this tiny little scrape, picked up staph infection from the mud and then was dead within a week. And Tracy, my wife and I were watching TV that night. I looked at her and said, if I got to be afraid of the mud, I'm not going to be afraid of anything. You know, if, if the mud can kill me, then anything can get me. And so there's just no reason to be worried about it at all. Right. It went too far. The whole world tried to be too scary. Right. They tried to tell me even the mud can get you. I was like, well, if the mud can get me, then anything can get me. And then there's no reason to be afraid at all. So I was talking to MJ that night. I was like, look, you just have a name to it. Right. You have diabetes. You have a particular focus of stress. The rest of us don't have that. But it is the reality of everybody's life day in and day out that we were promised tomorrow by no one, certainly not by God. And so what's happened in light of this is let's look at what changed. What changed is not that we could die at any moment. That was always a reality of our life. What changed was that a way that we could die was added to the list, a new stress, a new worry. And as C.S. Lewis says, that's just one of many. And that's what I talked about with MJ. It's like, look, it, it, it's diabetes, it's coronavirus, it's just a name that's been put on an ever-present reality of our lives. We offered up our lives as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our reasonable or spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1. We've given ourselves up over to God. He can use us as he pleases. And if His please, if it is his pleasure to call me home, then he'll get me. Just let him find me doing what I ought to be doing. So adaptability then at that point as well to see what changed and what didn't. What changed that coronavirus is a part of our life. What didn't change is that we face death as a part of life. Every day is appointed to all men to die once. So we have seen adapting. We have seen fear that we're having to face now. The last thing that I wanted to cover on this first podcast is the idea of Something, what does it mean to love our neighbor? I mentioned that earlier. We love our neighbor as ourself. But in the age of coronavirus, what does it mean? Because I have felt the fear. I, I admit it. I'm not always motivated by the most noble aspirations of the human nature. Sometimes when I go to the store and somebody gets too close to me, I'm like, hey, what are you doing? There was this, this older woman that was on the aisle at Walmart one day. And man, she was just determined to block the whole thing. 
And multiple of us were like trying to get around her and move around. And if you got near her, she was so bizarrely like leaning in your space. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm blocking the aisle. I'm like, woman. Um, I went to a, a drive through one time and most of the drive through people are appropriately leaning their head away from you as they, they hand you the card or, or whatever. But this one young lady like leaned into the window. So how you doing there, buddy? I'm like, I would be doing better if you were standing over there. Uh, so there is some, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have risen above it all. I have some fear of bringing things into my house. Obviously that would affect my family as I've become the, as I am voluntarily the go-to guy in our family for running most errands. But I can't govern my relationships with my fellow image bearers of God by being afraid of them. I can't socially distance because I see every other person I come into contact as a representative threat to my life and health. There's got to be a good way to do this, right? And there's a reason why it's important to me, and I'll get there. Because I am I feel like, as somebody who's had concerns about people who are more medically fragile. Now, we have heard, by the way, from my daughter's endocrinologist that she's at no more risk because of her age and her health than anybody else is. So that's good news. That's that's encouraging. But we're all a little bit at risk because we have zero immunity to this thing. So, um, but I'm following the advice, right? And a friend of mine was posting articles, helpful guy, smart guy, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he's posting things on Facebook to try to help people deal with this. And all of the recommendations about distancing, one after the other, came online, right? And he, and he shared them. And I sent him a personal note after he posted one, right? And I was willing to do everything he said and to agree at this point, okay, that's reasonable, that's reasonable. And then he said, well, if anybody in your family gets sick, they need to be separated, quarantined from the rest of the family, held at a distance of minimum of two feet. Only one person in the family should have contact with them. And I contacted my friend and I said, don't know that I could advise people to do that. And he said, well, that's the medical recommendations. And I said, oh, no, I agree with you. I 100% agree that that's what the doctors would have me do. I 100% agree that there are medical reasons to do that to prevent me from getting sick. He said, but I don't know that I could advise people to do that because I won't. If I get sick, I'll lock myself in my room and hide from the kids and my wife. We have a small house, but I'll still do everything that I can to separate myself. But if any of the other four people in my house got sick, there's one of two things going on. The overwhelming probability is that they're going to have a nasty little bug that's going to take longer than average. It's going to wreak havoc on them for two weeks, and then they're going to get better. That's the overwhelming probability that we're dealing with. And then there is a very small chance, very small chance, very small chance that that will begin something terrible in their lives and an even very 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 smaller chance that they have just entered the last days of their lives right those are the only probabilities we're looking at one they're going to get it they're going to recover they're going to be fine two they're going to get it it's going to get nasty but eventually after some nasty scary times they're going to pull through and there may be some permanent problems afterwards but that's very very unlikely to happen Three, they're going to get it and they're going to die. In none of those three scenarios would I be capable of looking at people that I love at the image bearers of God in my life and holding them at arm's length. I told my friend I'm crawling into bed with them. 
I'm snuggling up right next to them. It doesn't matter if it's a short-term illness or if it's the last days of their lives. I'm going to cuddle up next to them and make sure that they are loved, that they know that they are loved, that they are held close, that they are a part of community every moment that they're here. And you saw this, by the way, when Idris Elba announced that he was sick online and his wife Sabrina was in the room with him, there were people on the internet that felt necessary to chastise Idris Elba about having his wife there with him because it was not following medical protocol. And I thought their response days later when they finally decided that they were willing to discuss this or at least respond to it, she and he said together, look, we understand that you care about us and we're glad. But you need to understand that was never how this was going to go down. We were never going to isolate from each other. It was never going to happen that when my husband or my wife coming from them got sick, that I was going to hide from them, keep them at arm's length and move them away. Now, I'm not saying I'm right. What I'm saying is, and my friend's response to me was what Jay, it may mean that we have to reevaluate what it means to love our neighbor in this time. And I agree with him. But what we also have to remember is that when a medical doctor tells me that this is the best way to prevent the spread of the infection, there are means to, there are links to which I will agree with him as it pertains to people outside of this house. But if he tells me you put yourself at risk by loving that person in front of you that is scared and alone and you reach out to them to minister to them or to hold them or just to make sure they're loved, you risk catching it yourself. Well, if I'm willing to do all those other things of isolating, if all I'm doing is risking myself, I'm not sure what business it is of his or hers or any of the medical professionals out there, they can tell me the best way to protect myself and my community, but they can't tell me how to be a father if one of my kids gets sick. That's not their job. It's my job to evaluate the things that they've said and to make those decisions. And as it pertains to the rest of the community, I'm fine. I agree with you about how I should, I could become a representative risk to them and I'll do everything that I can when I'm out there. But when it comes to somebody that I love right in front of me that needs me or any member of our community that we feel willing to sacrifice ourselves, because here's the end of it. It doesn't, I wouldn't go into that believing that God's going to protect me and I'll never get sick. What I would in a long line of Christians throughout history who've, who've made the same calculation What I would be doing is saying, if I give up all the rest of my days to make sure that this moment, you know that you are loved and part of a community. As somebody who does not believe this is the end of it all, who does not believe that this is even close to all of what my life and my existence will be. As somebody who genuinely believes that I leave this world and I go to be with my Lord. I will trade the days that I have left on this earth to make that human being right there and make sure they know that they are loved and that they are part of a community. I will make that decision. Just like Idris Elba and Sabrina said, we will make this decision in our household. You don't have to agree with us, but I was never going to leave the side of my husband. I was never going to leave the side of my wife. That was never the way this was going to go down. And my friend is one of the most caring, loving people that I know. 
But as he and I were having this discussion, he's saying, this is the way that we limit coronavirus and we make sure that we protect the other people in our home. And it's, that's great. But I'm never, ever going to tell a father that he should distance himself from his child if his child gets sick. I'm never going to tell a mother that she should distance herself from her child if her child gets sick. They may choose to do that. That is undoubtedly the medically smart thing to do. But that's not the end of the conversation. The single most important thing for anybody that I love to know in my relationship with them is that they matter to me more than my life matters to me. And when they're scared and they're afraid and they're isolated and alone, I intend to cross that line, hold their hand and hug them. Now, I won't go back out into the world. I won't go spread it to other people. But there's a limit as we wonder about what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, to which we should defer constantly to the medical professionals. We have to be able to see what they tell us is reasonable and at what point we become a danger to other people. But when other people become a danger to me, as long as I do everything I can to protect the rest of the world from me, at that point, especially in my own household, I said, look, you, your, your rules were fine until we got there. And I'm not saying that's right. And I could be wrong. What I'm saying is that when I'm determining how to be a father, I take the medical advice into account. I do everything that I can to abide by the safest practices I can to keep my family healthy. But in the event that somebody other than me gets unhealthy, I have absolutely no intention of distancing myself from those people. As we look at this idea, this thing, it was designed to hurt. And we look at this sense of adaptability of being able to go into this, have goals, recognize what has changed, recognize what has stayed the same, identify the new means to reach those goals. As we fight fear and understand that I socially distance from the people around me, not because I'm afraid they're going to make me sick, but because I value them as human beings and I want to do everything that I can to protect their health as if it was my very own health. I want to respect their families as I would hope other people would respect mine. I want to guard all of those people who are vulnerable out there as best that I can. But there will be tough decisions that we will have to make, and we can't govern all of those decisions by the desire to stay safe. Some of those decisions we're going to make, the medical professionals themselves are making them right now, putting themselves in, uh, in harm's way, putting themselves at risk. Some of those decisions will be calculations that we make because we want to make certain that fear is not the dominant feeling or sense or emotion that we're experiencing during this time, but that it's love. I love my neighbor as I love myself. I'm able to do that because I love God first. And I am not afraid of dying. It is not the worst thing that can happen. And my calculation, the worst thing that can happen is for somebody to enter into their last days on this world and not get the best version of Jay if God has put me in their life. And if my life were coming to end, and this is a conversation I had with a friend of mine, I said, either everybody's going to be fine or somebody that I care and love is at the end of their life. And I want those people to get the best version of me in the time that we have left. Or 
if I'm the one who's entering into his last days, whether it's coronavirus or anything else, I want to try to make sure that the world gets the best version of me in the time that it has left, especially those people that God has cursed to put in complete and total proximity to me. I want them to remember me as someone who loved God and loved them as he loved his very self. That's more important to me than living a long life. Living a long life would be lovely. Don't get me wrong. I want to grow old with my wife. It's our main goal in this world. Live a long life together. Grow old together. But the difference between a corrupt worldview, a self-centered worldview, where everything that I do is built on this idea of serving my desires, my will, satisfying my whims, fulfilling my pleasure, right? And a Christian worldview that says that there are things that are more important to me and I serve those things. In the great commandments, the one in which all others are built is that I am to be found. You want to know what the first human thing that I can be found doing based on a biblical understanding of what it means to be a human being? If death finds me, let it find me loving the Lord my God with everything that I have and let death find me loving my neighbor as my very self. Thank you for turning into the first episode of Human Things. Remember, if you feel weird, if you feel scared, go love somebody. Be safe, be well, and until next time, all good things, all good things.